All right. Hello. We are here today with Thomas Smale of <clears throat> FE International. He is the founder. And Thomas, can you, uh, well, first welcome, but can you give us a little bit of a background on your history and how FE came about and kind of what's going on with y'all? Yeah. Hey, Garrett. Thanks very much for having me on. So we started the company in 2010. At the time, we were buying and selling websites for our, ourselves. Uh, and then around that time, we launched uh, an e-course to teach people how to buy and sell websites for themselves. Off the back of that course, um, which got like, very popular, we had a lot of great feedback from people. Um, some people went through the course and they said, hey, I've read the content, it's, it's great, but can you just sell my business for me? Which wasn't really something we'd ever thought about doing, doing before. We thought we would just teach people and continue doing it ourselves, which had been very profitable for us. So off the back of that, we figured, well, why not try selling a business for somebody? Um, so we did our first deal back in 2010. And then for the next two years, we continued uh, buying and selling ourselves. We continued teaching people. Um, we continued brokering. And then when we hit the end of 2012, we started to focus like pretty much just on, on brokering. So since then, that's basically been all we do. We do, we do buy and sell some businesses for ourselves still. So we still have a seven-figure portfolio of SaaS and content-based uh, businesses, but that's very much not core from the main business. It's really just uh, a, a cash flow thing for us and keeping up the industry. We've always found that clients, whoever prefer working with somebody who's actually like been there and done it. Mm -hmm. uh, it doesn't make sense to offer a service in an industry if you don't actually do it yourself. Yeah. Um, so that's always what we've done. That's I love the story because like it's the same thing when I talk to SaaS founders. So many of the businesses that are successful didn't start out like let's go build a business. It started out with one thing, and then you know in your case, kind of giving away education and feedback and learning, and then the demand kind of pulled you in a direction rather than yeah. you didn't set out to do something. It just kind of happened by virtue of doing what you were enjoying and having fun with it and sharing knowledge and that kind of thing. And then the business just happened yeah absolutely i think a lot of businesses naturally pivot based on the demand that comes in and i think if you start with something like a, a course it's quite open-ended and there's lots of different ways you can go with the business so we just naturally went with what people were asking us for it certainly wasn't what we thought we would end up doing but uh, there was a lot of demand for it and we were quite good at it so it made a lot of sense to focus yeah well i feel like pivot's one of those words in a way it's gotten a bad name for itself because it's basically more of a oh my idea is not working let me try another idea whereas you're not pivoting like actively turning it's you're getting yanked in a direction because there's just demand there and you're filling it right whereas a lot of times it feels more like pivoting's like okay this isn't working what else can we try quick hurry yeah i think the word does tend to get used interchangeably um but i've seen like tons of successful businesses that have started out doing one thing i guess it's just the next step in the yeah. evolution of the business um yeah. so yeah one of the things and i want to kind of tell a quick story about working with y'all before asking this question mm -hmm. um one of the things that when i first talked to you on the phone i don't know this would have been what early early this year or wait no no uh sorry or, or late 2015 yeah it would have um, been middle of the end of 2015 yeah, somewhere around there um talked to you got on the phone with you and ask you some questions and, you know, at, this, it, at the time, just completely on guard, wary, not trusting at all, like, okay, come on, 
Um, the only reason I even considered calling was because I talked to Patrick McKenzie and he had nothing but great things to say. And I was still on guard. And I talked to you and then you basically said everything I could have possibly wanted to hear. And I'm like, this sounds too good to be true. Like this sales pitch is too effective. Like, all right, you know, Patrick said good things. Um, everything they're telling me sounds good. Let's do this. And went into it. And over time, y'all definitely uh, kind of earned my trust. And then especially once, so we had our first deal, which we walked away from on closing day. And the at that moment, when y'all were literally a signature away from getting paid, um, you know, I would have expected some pressure to be like, you know, it's okay, let's go ahead and concede this and, you know, close the deal. You may not get another deal. Take it, you know. And there was, like, there was not even a breath of that from David or any of y'all. It just was, yeah, that sucks. Okay, you know, you're making the right decision. Let's move on. And Mm -hmm. so at that moment, it was kind of, even though it was going to be a whole heck of a lot more work for y'all, slimmer chances that maybe, you know, the commission was going to be lower because the value of the business was ended up being lower and it did. Um, so that to me was just kind of like, all right, they, they get it. They're not here just to flip the business and turn it and get their check and move on. Like I really felt like y'all, um, kind of stood by that. So for me, it took some time to kind of wear me down being a skeptic is that, uh, I feel like with, I don't know if it's a terminology of brokers or just the natural, the business. Like there's probably a lot of people out there that have made a bad name for the industry. Um, is that mm-hmm. something you'll encounter a lot? Is there any advice or kind of knowledge and context you could give people about um, just kind of helping them understand the bigger picture and see kind of where y'all fit in and why y'all do things the way you do and that kind of thing? Mm-hmm. Yeah, I, I mean, I think brokers in general, whether you want to call it a, a broker or an advisor, they do tend to get a bad rep mainly because there are just so many bad companies out there to be honest and calling yourself a broker advisor there's no there's no like hard and fast rule as to what what means you are a broker i mean you could technically just do it yourself from home with no experience and from a, a seller perspective you, you don't really know the, the difference um i guess that was part of the inspiration for actually uh pivoting if we're going to use that word again uh in, in 2012 and really focusing on it i think we found that just our general approach um, had meant we, we got a lot of word of mouth business. And I think if you get word of mouth business consistently, then that's a pretty good sign that you're doing things uh, the right way. Um, but we certainly get a lot of resistance to people. Um, I mean, our approach, I mean, I guess we are a company that we have to sell people firstly on working with us and then actually sell the, sell the business. Um, but I wouldn't say any of us internally, we wouldn't describe ourselves as salespeople. We don't really do any formal sales training or anything like that. Um, so when we initially speak to sellers, it's very much just a case of building credibility um, and being very honest with people. But we've always kind of prided ourselves in giving people the right advice. So whether that means walking away from the wrong deal or being like very honest with the valuation. Often people come in and they say, we might value a business at a million dollars. And they might say, we want three million dollars or something like that. And the, the temptation, particularly when you're starting out and for a lot of the smaller brokers, the temptation is just to agree, uh, try at that level and see what happens. Um, but I mean, so we have a, a 95% success rate for deals we take on, uh, and that's only ever increasing. And that's really down to just being like very honest with mm-hmm. expectations. If we don't think it's a good fit, then we're going to be quite honest about that. Um, yeah. And I think that's, that's quite important. So I think advice-wise, if you're looking to sell a business, regardless of who you're working with, 
I think just be a little bit skeptical if there's someone you're dealing with who basically agrees with everything you say. I mean, part of the reason you hire a broker in the first place is they are the experts. So if they're not giving you any pushback on anything, whether it's valuation, process, sales time, other expectations, um, or also like anything related to process. So if you work with us, we have a process, yeah. and we're not going to change that process based on what the buyer or buyer or the seller wants. Um, so I think that's quite important. Uh, it's pretty much impossible to consistently sell businesses if you are constantly changing the process. Yeah. Uh, it's not very scalable. Uh, it's not very predictable. Uh, and just in general, I think we'd be doing people a disservice if we just agreed to everything they said. Yeah, absolutely. So is there kind of a threshold that, or, or key criteria that you would say, if somebody's thinking about like, oh, can I get out of this for whatever reason, uh, I mean, is it a, a revenue point or kind of what's that determination about whether a business is viable to even be sold uh, mm -hmm. or to use a broker, to justify using a broker? Yeah, so I mean, we, we look at a lot of different factors. I mean, I guess the, like, the, the caveat would be it's always worth a conversation. Mm -hmm. Most people will be pretty honest with you straight away if it's going to be a good fit or not. Okay. I mean, some of the, the main things we'll look at is making sure the business is at least 12 months old. We get a lot of people who come to us with a, a product they launched three months ago and they yeah. say, oh, look, we're making X amount, can we sell it? Uh, well, there's obviously always a possibility that business could be sold. We've built our reputation on selling businesses that are profitable and at least a year old. So we tend to shy away from those. Yeah. Um, in terms of size, I mean, we, we have a real range of experience internally and a team that deals with businesses anywhere from $20,000 up to 10 million and above. So size-wise, as long as it's profitable, and making more than about $1,000 a month net, then we will usually take it on, at least from a size perspective. Okay. One of the things that comes up, particularly with SaaS businesses, that means we quite often walk away, is where the business is super reliant on the owner, uh, whether they've done all of the, the coding or the programming themselves or the running of it. Um, and if they are full-time on the business, that can be quite challenging, particularly with, particularly with smaller businesses. So if there's a product making, say, $5,000 a month and the owner's spending 20 hours a week on customer support, 20,000, sorry, 20 hours a week on programming development, then that's going to be quite a difficult sale. So that's that's one of the situations where we then work with people maybe on a six or 12 month plan to transition themselves out of the day to day. Processing processes, documenting the code. Um, and making sure from a, a buyer perspective that anyone could come in and, and run that business. So I'd say they're the main things with SaaS businesses. I mean, we do look at hundreds of different variables, but they're probably the main ones that come up. Yeah, well, that makes a good case for just automation and documentation so that the business isn't so reliant on you. And the nice thing about that is all that work is useful to you, whether you sell the business or not. Well, so uh, it's, uh, yeah. It's just a great way to invest. I mean, that's I've got a whole chapter I'm planning on writing about automation and kind of documenting processes because... Mm -hmm as good as Sifter was about that in hindsight with all the due diligence, it's like, Oh wow, I really could have done better there. Yeah. Uh, that due diligence is a great process regardless of selling the business too. I think when you're forced to really analyze your business and look at it from a more quantitative, you know, quantitative perspective instead of just a, you know, product owner looking at your baby, it gives you yeah. a lot more insight. Yeah, you definitely get that raw feedback that you wouldn't get yourself or maybe from like friends and family. It's quite difficult to get that until you actually have somebody who doesn't know you and they're just looking to 
to buy the business. So yeah, absolutely. And things with like systems and processes, basically everything we advise people during the exit planning process, if they're not selling right away, it's something that will increase the value. And if it's increasing the value, it's making the business better in general, whether that's making more money or spending less time, which I guess for almost every business owner is a is a goal. Well, and I can imagine it can also have a good impact on decreasing the transition time and your need for involvement after selling the business and kind of make it easier to extricate yourself and move on. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, it certainly helps. Like with a, a training period, you're much more likely to negotiate a shorter training period if everything's documented and you're not really involved. If you are working 40 hours a week on the business and nothing's documented, then it's going to take a lot longer. So it's much better yeah. to do it once because you're only going to end up doing it at the end of the process. And by that stage, you've probably already had to take a a lower offer than the business owner who's already done it and kind of ready to go. Yes. Yeah. Um, so somebody's looking to sell their business. Uh, I mean, we, this might, we kind of might've touched this. What kind of one or two key universal pieces of advice would you have for them uh, just to make a decision about should I sell, should I not sell and kind of what should I be doing to help make that decision or prepare for it? So, I mean, I think I think the first piece of advice is, is start a conversation. I always encourage people just to get a valuation, even if they're not necessarily thinking about selling. And it's very difficult to make a decision whether or not you should be selling until you know what it's actually worth. Mm-hmm. Um, and then from there, most sellers we deal with tend to have one of two goals. It's either a timing-based goal, so I need to sell the business by December, or a value-based goal, I want a million dollars for my business. Or some people will have a combination of the two, so... I want to get as much as possible for my business in the next six months. What do I need to do? Um, so once you've done that, you're going to be in a much better position to establish whether or not it's the right time to sell. I think other than that, it's, it's very difficult to decide until you know where where you are now and what you're working on. And through the valuation process, it's also like a, a pre-assessment as well. So we pick up on a lot of things that people can be working on. So if someone decides now's not the right time to sell and we'll give them three to five things to be working on over the next three months six months 12 months that means when they do come back that business is going to be uh more sellable or more valuable yeah puts them in a better position yeah exactly and so what about on the the flip side with buyers what would you Mm -hmm. tell buyers to zero in on or i guess what do you tell buyers when you're working with them um, to focus on and what makes for a healthy recurring revenue business Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, I mean, I think one of the first things for a buyer is figuring out what you can and can't run. So if you're not a developer yourself mm-hmm. and you're looking to buy a technical business like a SaaS product, um, then you need to make sure you look for a business that either has a team already in place or maybe you should partner with someone or look to hire someone quite early on, particularly for the due diligence period. Um, because from a seller perspective, things might not be that well documented and you really want to go through the code or at least a sample of the code that we'll usually give you access to in that that period and make sure you have a a good understanding of it from there i think it's really just a case of finding a a business as a good fit with your skill set so while you might not be a developer you might be a great marketer and you might be a business where particularly in the SaaS space sellers tend to be below a million dollars they tend to be very much developers first and marketers and business people second. So there's often some opportunities for people who come in with a different skill set to improve that business. 
Um, so I think figuring out what you're good at and where you can add value is quite important. Um, there's no point buying a business where you don't really understand any of it and nothing you know about is going to be relevant to that particular business. I mean, you, you could do that, but I would always advise people to pick something that um, they're interested in or they have skills that can be be worked on. I, I think the other thing as well, particularly if you're going to buy through a broker, is be quite clear and honest, open on. Much like with sellers, we encourage them to speak to us as early as possible. If you're looking to buy a business, then be quite clear, firstly, like what you're willing and able to spend. There's no point sitting there with $100,000 and looking at million-dollar businesses. You're just kind of wasting everyone's time. Yeah. Um, and also a good understanding of your time horizon. Like I, I never encourage buyers to rush through the process. And while we do sell businesses uh, quite quickly, particularly in the SaaS space, um, doing your research, maybe that means looking at different businesses and prospectuses for six months before you make a decision. I think that's important as well, um, particularly if it's your your first acquisition or a large acquisition. There's no real prizes for rushing through that process. Yeah, for anybody, for that matter. Yeah. <laughs> um, is there a certain trend you see amongst buyers? Does that kind of is that kind of changed over time? Do they tend to be less fewer technical buyers or people who aren't necessarily technical, um, or do they kind of is it just really all over the board? Uh, that's a very good question. Um, we have a real range of buyers. We have tens of thousands of qualified buyers on our list and the, the skills they have will really vary. I'd say most people in the SaaS space will either be technical themselves, already have a team, or they'll have a, a partner or like a, a trusted employee mm -hmm. who is is technical. Um, so it's, it's quite rare to find someone buying a SaaS business who has literally no technical experience or access to anything technical. Um, I'd say one of the main trends as well is more and more formal funds, whether that's like a, a venture fund, a private equity group, private investors coming into the space and probably lowering the size of businesses they were looking for. So traditionally, a lot of investment groups won't look at businesses below $10 million, say. And we're seeing quite a few sales, particularly 500000 and up, where they're actually bought by investor groups that previously wouldn't really have been looking at the level, mainly because there's just so much uh, potential with a lot of these businesses. They can be fantastic products, but often just run by a single founder um, and with a, a marketing team or a development team behind it, some of these businesses can really grow quite quickly. Yeah, absolutely. What's, what's the biggest or most common mistake you see when people reach out to you and you're looking over their the, the prospectus after it gets put together, you're talking to them, what's the just the most common or most important mistake that people make? Is that from a seller perspective or a buyer uh, perspective? From a seller. So I'm, you know, as a product owner, I'm coming to you um, and you're looking over my business. What did I do wrong? Yeah, I'd say probably one of the most common ones, like regardless of business model, regardless of size, is uh, not tracking financials properly. We usually spend a lot of time uh, working with owners, preparing, that, preparing their financials, whether it means they don't have their books in order at all, or they might not understand their finances, mm -hmm. um, or maybe there are some like commingled finances from other businesses, yeah. which is quite common. Like quite often, someone will have maybe three products under one LLC, and if they're just selling one product, then there might be some costs. Like for example, they might have a developer who works on three businesses, and you've got to figure what the the relevant cost is. So I'd say anything like financial related, it's very rare to find financials where 
we get sent them and we kind of use them as they are. There's almost definitely some back and forth Makes on sense. various adjustments. Um, another thing is metrics. I mean, I definitely see that sellers have got better than this over the last few years because there are various tools out there you can use to track SaaS metrics, but not knowing those um, won't necessarily uh, stop a sale, but we would definitely need to figure them out before we get listed. Yep. Uh, buyers are often like very interested in metrics like churn, lifetime value, anything like that. So um, the better you track those, the more transparent you can be, then the easier the sale process is going to be as well. So, what, I mean, is it as simple as founders should get a bookkeeper involved sooner or a CPA? Or what, what would you be your specific advice to help mitigate that and how they could go about it? Yeah, I mean, I think generally speaking, particularly for the size of businesses we deal with, you don't necessarily need an accountant to be doing it. It's really just bookkeeping. Mm -hmm. I think accounting is more relevant when it comes to paying your taxes at the end of the year, um, finding relevant write-offs, which isn't really something we deal with in the sales process because we don't take tax into account yeah. at all. I mean, a buyer might do from their personal situation. Um, so it's really just bookkeeping, just having someone who does your books on a monthly basis, keeping them up to date. And again, much like we were saying with processes, there's almost no situation where tracking your numbers better on a monthly basis is going to be bad for business. Yeah. It might might be an extra expense that you might have previously done every six months or every 12 months. Um, but if you can do it on a monthly basis, then it just makes things uh, a lot easier. And generally, bookkeepers aren't a massive expense. No. Accountants can be quite expensive, um, particularly if you've got quite a complex tax situation. But just preparing your financials for sale um, really shouldn't be that complex. It's just a case of getting started. Where it can get quite messy is if it's not done for 12 months and then yeah, you have to catch up. like receipts and invoices and you're like, here's my numbers, uh, which doesn't really work that well. Um, yeah, so just get a bookkeeper involved early. And it, it really doesn't need to be complicated. It's not like we do an extreme amount of detailed financial analysis down to the cent. Um, it's just a case of like having it all in order. Yeah. Well, and, and anything that isn't in order or kind of looks off is going to raise red flags, slow down the sales process. You know, if it slips through, and ideally none of that slips through the cracks, but invariably things come up like, wait a minute, what was this about? Why is, so I think it's one of those things that it's just, just like process, it's going to pay off dividends, whether you sell or not, but especially yeah. if you eventually sell. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Things like documentation. I mean, we, we do as much verification as we can mm -hmm. pre-listing, but often there are things that might come up mid-process, like a cost that's been forgotten about or a buyer doesn't like the way costs have been allocated in a certain way. Um, so, yeah, the earlier that can be uh, flagged, ideally we'll, we'll figure all of that out pre-listing, which is why, I mean, a lot of people who work with us often, like some of the feedback they say is they spend a lot of time with us up front, uh, but that's very much intentional to make sure that they're in a good position when it is listed there's nothing worse than getting halfway through the process and finding out there's problems much better out figuring that out at the beginning of the process is it fair to say that more often than not the buyers are going to be more financially savvy than the sellers and be better at spotting those things just from their history and the nature of the fact that they're on the buying side yeah, I, I say so. I mean, I say the majority of buyers probably have an investing background. So a lot of buyers we deal with might be might probably invest in real estate is quite a common like profile we see. 
Um, and often bear in mind if you're buying a business, so let's say you're buying a business for a million dollars, chances are a million dollars isn't all the cash you have in the world. Yeah. You may well have, say, 10 million in uh, invested assets, which is often a lot more than sellers, particularly to build the business themselves, where when they set up the business, m- most people are really just out there to make a living and like quit their jobs, not have to do freelancing anymore. Yeah. So 10, 20, 30,000 dollars a month is a lot of money and can sustain like whole families. Whereas from a buyer perspective, particularly if they're looking at it from an investment point of view, and chances are they have a lot more and a more financially savvy in that respect. Yeah. One of the interesting things for me going through selling Sifter was that it can actually be a little more challenging selling a smaller business than a larger business. Is that is that something that's held true? And kind of if so, what's the threshold for that? And why is that the case? Yeah, I mean, I say in general, sales times for smaller businesses are a lot faster. And um, valuations can often be higher just because there's so much demand at that that level. Mm-hmm. Uh, but there really is a, a real range. I'd say the main reason they can be hard to sell is in advance that's where you could spend a lot more time because usually at that level let's say a small business is a hundred thousand dollars versus say a million dollar SaaS business generally speaking people who run a hundred thousand dollar business is probably a side project for them Mm -hmm. Um, if it's not a side project and that's all they're working on then they might not be particularly financially savvy so not having their books in order is extremely common whereas for a million dollar business it's uh, less likely. Yeah. Uh, things like metrics, again, mo- most owners of smaller businesses won't track that as well as larger businesses. Um, so say, I mean, in general, they're not necessarily harder to sell. They, they can often just take more time proportionately um, than bigger businesses. And that's really just a lack of um, initial preparation or, I guess, sophistication. Yeah, which makes sense. I think most developers on those smaller projects I mean, even for me with Sifter, I knew enough to kind of keep up with bookkeeping, but that was the least exciting part of it all. And it was yeah, not the place where I wanted to spend my time. Yeah. Uh, although in hindsight, now it would definitely be something that I would give a lot more attention uh, mm-hmm. earlier on. So with buying and selling SaaS, SaaS is obviously in its own way a very kind of unique business, especially with recurring revenue. And mm-hmm. they don't just start shrinking overnight like churn and stuff as long as you you generally will have a healthy plateau where the business can go on fairly indefinitely and obviously i experienced that with sifter and going through three years of working on it really inconsistently depending on what i was juggling um so how does that translate into making SaaS different in terms of buying and selling and maybe how it affects the valuation how it affects the, the perception or you know i guess you kind of mentioned a couple times that it's becoming a more common thing for people to be interested in and want to buy and uh, funds kind of coming down market and buying s- smaller companies. Um, so what would you say makes it different than other investment vehicles or other businesses that aren't necessarily recurring revenue based? Yeah, so I mean, the, the other main business models we focus on are e-commerce businesses and then content based businesses, whether that's like Amazon affiliate or AdSense. Yeah. Um, but so compared to those business models, um, one of the main things is valuations are almost always higher than all of those models in almost all situations. 
And I think one of the main reasons for that is just the barrier to entry to building a, a SaaS product and getting traction is a is a lot higher and harder um, than some of the other business models. So naturally, it's like a more defensible business. You could often, I always say to people, with a SaaS business, you can often just close the doors for any new customers, and that business is still going to make more money, make money over time. Mm-hmm. Whereas you do that with almost every other business or business model, then it's not. The valuations are, are higher, and I, I definitely don't see that slowing di- down anytime soon. Um, from a buyer perspective, um, it's a very competitive space at the moment for buying, particularly in the last 12, 18 months. Um, whether that's because we've got better and built a bigger list of buyers, which is definitely true, um, but also I just think more and more interest from people in buying SaaS, whereas previously maybe not quite as popular of a business model, maybe due to like lack of understanding or like say like some funds looking at bigger businesses than they do now. Um, so I think it's a it can be challenging for a first time buyer to get a deal over the line in the SaaS space. So if some of the things we were talking about earlier, making sure like you're well prepared with exactly what you want, when you buy it, what you're willing to spend, and then building a relationship with a broker or advisor or advisors or brokers um, and letting them know what you want. It means you're going to be in a much better position because they'll be able to send you opportunities that are a good fit as soon as they come out. And then you're going to be probably competing against uh, less buyers. And from a broker perspective, while we represent the seller in the transaction, it's in our best interest for a deal to get done. So if we think a buyer is particularly serious and they actually are going to buy a business, then we are going to spend time with that person to make sure they do buy something that's a good fit. Um, so i say that's really important. A lot of buyers come in and they might be a bit worried about the fact they're a first-time buyer or be a little bit intimidated by the process. Um, but ultimately, while we don't work for you, we'll still work with you to make sure that you can actually successfully buy something. Um, from the sell side, I'd say one thing a lot of uh, SaaS owners can underestimate as a lot of feedback people get about us is the process is quite complex and does take some time SaaS businesses really aren't that easy to sell which is part of the reason we've done so well in the space we put so much time and resource into like learning it uh, building out relationships with people in the industry and our own knowledge um, that a lot of other brokers and advisors and people trying to sell themselves really struggle because they're not very simple businesses um, at all so having that specialist knowledge is quite important. Um, I say also selling a SaaS business is not really something you can do with one or two pages of information. There's a lot of data gathering required, whereas with like a uh, affiliate site that gets search engine traffic, mm-hmm. you can really buy that business with a few lines of information if you're an experienced buyer. Yeah. Whereas for the SaaS business, it's basically impossible because of the complexity of operations you've got the back-end code most likely some unique ip there um so the due diligence and general things you need to know um there's a lot more i mean i guess that's offset by the fact valuations are higher yeah. so you probably spend a little bit more time on the process um particularly up front um, but once the process starts SaaS businesses are probably one of the quickest business models we we sell now and also valuations like i said consistently outperform uh, most of the other main business models too. 
Right on. Okay. Well, so that kind of brings us towards the end. Is there any other um, just kind of key advice or parting ideas and concepts that uh, you'd want to share with people and um, other than at least talk to a broker because uh, it's, you know, you have nothing to lose, but is there, what would you tell somebody, I guess on either side, buyer and seller? Um, mm -hmm. Yeah. I mean, I think we've been quite comprehensive with uh, the Q and A so far. Um, I think from a seller perspective, other than the obvious start a conversation early, um, be aware of the timing of a sale. A lot of people come to us maybe when it's not necessarily too late, but they come to us if it's a side project for them or maybe they're a bit out of their depth and the business is beginning to like plateau or maybe even decline. That's when they start the conversation or start thinking about selling. But from a valuation perspective and just a saleability perspective in general, selling at the right time. So ideally when the business is still growing, um, well, that might seem counterintuitive. People say, well, why should I sell a business that's, that's still growing? And that certainly makes sense. But from a saleability perspective, valuation perspective, sell it while it's growing, it's going to be worth significantly more and sell faster than the business that's um, declining or plateauing. So I'd say my main advice there is uh, don't be afraid to sell when it is still growing. And that's that really is like could be the best time. Um, from a buyer perspective, I'd say one of the main mistakes I see buyers make, um, particularly in a very competitive buying space that it is, uh, or buying through a broker or advisor like us who has pretty large lists and a, a good reputation, we do get businesses sold quickly and at like, very good valuations. Mm -hmm. uh, so a lot of buyers come in and their main criteria is just getting a good deal financially. So they like to feel like they're paying yeah. less than market value for a business and to be perfectly honest if you're working with with us it's highly unlikely you're ever going to pick up a, a bargain for a business so I, th I think the areas you should be looking at uh, when getting a good deal is not really in the price but looking for a business that's a really good fit for you yeah. a business that can grow a business that has synergies with anything else you might have in your portfolio if you're a buyer like that um, rather than just focusing on price um, which, to be honest, if you manage to grow a business um, or you can add value to it, then what you've paid is pretty much relevant straight away. Um, yeah, so I think bargain, bargain shopping is not necessarily the best way to go, particularly through a broker. I mean, there's always possibilities to pick up yeah. projects from people, um, but that's not really what we focus on. Um, and I think there are much better opportunities buying a business that's growing, even if you do feel like the valuation is high. Yeah. That's good stuff. All right. Well, this has been awesome. Uh, thanks so much for taking the time. I appreciate it and obviously appreciate all the help with Sifter back when. Yeah, cool. <laughs> thanks so much. Yeah. Thank you.